Hey, welcome to Ask a Pastor today. I am joined by John Fuller. John is a longtime part of Orchard Hill Church, a former executive with the Heinz Corporation, is an elder at our church here in, in, at Orchard Hill. And so welcome, John. Glad to have you here today. Thank you. Glad to be here. And uh, for those of you listening on the radio, John is also a black man. And the reason I tell that is because we're going to talk about race today. And I know that race is probably a topic some people are uh, tired of talking about, some people want to keep talking about, but uh, John has a lot of perspective that I know will be helpful uh, just in this cultural moment for us. So, John, first, tell us a little bit about just your own journey, where you grew up, um, when you grew up, because I, I think that's actually helpful, just just uh, your perspective on that, how you ended up in Pittsburgh and kind of how you uh, experienced that, that move. Okay. Uh, I grew up in North Carolina, um, Henderson uh, area particularly. Uh, it was in the Jim Crow South, segregation in other words, in the 1950s and 1960s, went to separate schools, separate churches. Although we live not segregated in the community, we went to different facilities because of Jim Crow. Um, from high school, I went to uh, North Carolina Central University in Durham, North Carolina, where during the early 60s, we encountered uh, the student demonstrations um, led by Martin Luther King and others. I actually participated in student demonstrations yeah. so that we could uh, actually eliminate the segregation in public facilities, buses, uh, bus stations, uh, schools, etc., lunch counters. Uh, in particular, in Durham, North Carolina, we were instrumental in uh, desegregating the lunch counters. I, I remember in particularly Rose's five and 10 cent store where blacks could shop there but could not sit down at the lunch counters and eat. And of course, uh, we worked uh, diligently to change that. And as it so happens, we were able to accomplish that mission, not only in Durham, but in other hometowns in North Carolina. So, so from, from there, uh, from college, uh, I was drafted into the U.S. Army. Uh, I served at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, uh, AIT at um, Fort Gordon. And then from there, uh, I went to Japan, where I did foreign duty there during the Vietnam War. And then from Japan back to the United States at Fort Ord Hospital, and then out of service. From there, um, I was recruited to work for the H.J. Hines Company in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania uh, in 1970. I came to work, never thought that I would spend a whole career there, uh, but I did. Um, I retired from the H.J. Hines Company. Um, I lived in Wexford most of the time in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I lived in Penn Hills part of the time, and of course, I learned about Orchard Hill Church uh, when I moved to Wexford. So that's sort of the lay of the land. So you have a, a much longer perspective than most people, having lived in the South in the era when segregation was still legal and practiced, and 
uh, help to even uh, march and change that. Um, move to the north, if you call Pittsburgh north, um, the mid-north, I guess you could call it. And in the 70s, when uh, there was still uh, certainly a lot of racial um, challenges and have lived through uh, 2020 and everything that is happening today, where have you seen progress in terms of race in the United States and where do you look and say there's a lack of progress? Certainly there from a perspective of Jim Crowism in the South, uh, there are no more separate rest, uh, toilet facilities, bus station facilities, uh, churches, if, if you will, they're integrated, schools are integrated. So from that perspective, it's, it's very different. Um, but in, in that context, there's still the missing piece of total equality in this country for African-Americans. Um, you could look at uh, very, various aspects like um, where people live in the community, real estate. Or you could look at jobs in some cases, opportunity to pursue those jobs in certain areas. Um, so in, in, in that respect, they are different, but also the same, have made that much difference as we look at it today. As I look back at the demonstrations of the 1960s, one thing, the church was a part of that at that time, uh, Martin Luther King and, and many others, Catholics, et cetera. Today, you don't see that as much. I, I haven't seen the church as a vocal part of the demonstrations that's been occurring uh, in, the, in 2020 and 2019. Um, as an African-American, I, I think certainly there's opportunities that exist now that certainly did not exist for us before. But we have to do a lot on our own to pursue those opportunities. While if they're there and we don't take advantage of them, it really doesn't help us to move progress mm -hmm. forward for our race. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as a teenager in the 50s in the South, Jim Crow, explain to us how that impacted you and your view of white and black? As a child, I, I certainly, when I went with my parents, understood there were colored facilities and white facilities. I never really understood that. Uh, also in eating facilities, they would serve whites in one area up front, but then blacks had to be served in the back. But what always puzzled me was white and black were separate. But when the money was collected, it all went in the same <laughs> cash register. I never understood that. <laughs> um, uh, white, white water fountains and colored water fountains. I was looking for colored water, but never saw <laughs> colored water. It was all, you know, you could see it was the same type of water. So those things as a child puzzled me. But as, as I grew older, certainly I understood that Jim Crowism said there was white supremacy, period. 
you didn't challenge a white person. If a white person said something, a declaration on your behalf or against you, that was law. You accepted that. That's the way it was. That was Jim Crowism. Uh, that's not necessarily the case now, although I think it still carries some weight. Okay. So there are many black voices that have come out in recent days that a lot of white people have rallied to. Um, I'm thinking of Candace Owens. I'm thinking of Larry Elder. I'm thinking of Shelby Steele, um, Morgan Freeman, Denzel Washington, who will say, and I'm going to paraphrase and kind of make a conglomeration of all of them. Um, they'll basically say, yes, Jim Crow laws were horrible. Obviously, slavery was uh, an awful thing. But those things are now well enough in our past and they don't believe that there's such a thing today as um, certainly systemic racism or maybe that, that there's isolated racist incidents, but that there isn't some widespread racism and that the narrative of the continuation of systemic racism actually perpetuates um, kind of a, a, a poverty among black people that doesn't need to be if black people would instead say, we live where there's opportunity and chances to move forward. Now, I'm putting some words in their mouths, um, but, but that seems to be the argument that many have made and then uh, black people have made, certain black people. We know not any one black person speaks for all black people, but like we get that, just like no one white person speaks for all white people or one cop's actions are all cops. Uh, we, we understand that. But what, what do you say to that line of thinking? Is that helpful? Is that hurtful? Is that realistic, unrealistic? How, how should people hear those voices that are saying something so different than what is being said by so many others? Well, I think certainly the media has a narrative that they share and put forth and it depends on whether or not you play into that narrative or some other. The list of people that you mentioned, Shelby Steele and others, they have the perspective, Walter Harris, mm -hmm. that certainly the uh, war on poverty that was started by Lyndon Johnson, uh, affirmative action, some of these programs that have actually been to the detriment of black people because it prevented us from actually using our creativity, ingenuity, and in moving forward toward freedom. Um, why? Because the government is given and you don't, you don't have to do anything for it, you just take it. Well, I don't quite, I don't, I don't by, by all of that, um, I was hired uh, under affirmative action. And clearly in the corporate world at that time, Affirmative action was thought of by whites as here's a group of black folk who don't belong here. You're not qualified to be here. So you had to work extra hard to prove, in fact, that you did belong. And I think those of us who survived, in fact, did that. Um, it wasn't easy, but uh, we certainly had the opportunity to do that because of affirmative action. Now, those who say affirmative action actually did not help us, well, I think the jury's out on that mm -hmm. from an individual perspective. Okay. 
So what was it like to be hired knowing that, that you were hired by an affirmative action initiative? You said you knew you had to work harder. Did that, was it a positive experience for you, a negative experience? Do you think you would have had the job that you ended up with had it not been for that? How, how did that? Probably not. Okay. Um, when, when I got out of service, uh, I was recruited at three or four, maybe five places. I recall um, General Foods in White Plains, New York, General Electric in Macon, Georgia, the Space J.F. Kennedy Space Center in Florida, and the H.J. Hines Company in Pittsburgh. Um, I interviewed at three of those, and I chose H.J. Hines Company. I don't think I would have been at either one of those had it not been for affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Okay. So did it help me? Yes. I, I think in my particular case, it helped me. Uh, I did not wait for the government to hand me anything. I worked and earned that which, and, and I believe I've shown within the historical perspective of the highest company that I made a contribution. Okay. When you hear people today talk about systemic racism, then we kind of talked about, you know, some people would say, we're not sure that this is a helpful category. What do you hear in that that is helpful? What do you hear in that that's unhelpful? Uh, let me, I'll, I'll think of two cases that where I still think there's a lot of work to be done, particularly in real estate. If you look at how, where people live and how people live, we're basically still segregated. There are basically white communities, there are black communities or whatever. <clears throat> In real estate, uh, I, I think there's um, a concerted effort to make sure it stays that way. For example, if a community is white, predominantly white, that it stays white. If it's predominantly black, it stays black. Uh, and that's, that's through the dynamics of real estate and the wishes of people. Um, so how does that work in reality? Like, like, if, like if somebody says, uh, uh, like obviously you chose to move into an area that was predominantly white. Um, how did that work for you that you were, that you one, wanted to do it and you chose to do it? Why did you choose to do it? Um, and what were the factors that were against it? When we searched for real estate, we lived uh, uh, East Pittsburgh. We looked East, and we lived West, we looked North, and we really couldn't find the house that we wanted. So it so happened that it was a developer in Westford who was developing property. We looked at it, it was exactly what we wanted. We could afford it. We were the only uh, black family in that uh, particular development. And it's basically remained that way for all of these years. We, we moved here in 1986, December 1986. And while there has been turnover in the community, there's still only one black family. So you've been in, the lone black family in that in development that for almost 34 30, years? Yes. Okay. And, and there's been turnover at least half of the community. And in all the times, there have been white people who come look. I've never seen a minority come look. Hmm. So, so I guess my question is, why? If, if it's affordable for, obviously, there's people who have the resources to do that. Um, it's a desirable school system. 
Um, why, how, how, what are the forces that are conspiring to keep it that way? I guess if, if, if I can ask that question. There might, there might be two. I, I think it's the practice of real estate to, to show people where they want to live is basically where they want to live. And the tendency has been, if I be candid, when blacks move in, whites move out. That's been my experience. It was the experience east, but has not been the experience in the north. And I think the reason for that is real estate people are showing white people white communities and take black people to basically black communities. Now, that might not be the case um, for people in sports, for some of corporate America, but for the most part, that's been my experience. Okay. So are the real estate agents racist? Are they just conditioned to where they think people want to be shown homes? What, what drives that, I guess, if that's an indication of, of some kind of systemic issue? I think it's a systemic issue, but I don't think it's necessarily racism. I think it, it's the practice of how people want to live. Okay. For, for example, I mean... This is a rhetorical question. I mean, how many black families live in your neighborhood? How many black families do you associate with? I mean, and if you look at that, I don't expect you to answer it, but if you look at that, that's part of the issue. And I have to ask myself the same question. If we want to change things, the dynamic in our society, we have to look at how we associate one-on-one, -on -one, in our families, in our communities. So if I don't have white people to come to my house that I socialize with on a regular basis, it's probably not going to be the case that we would be living in the same neighborhood, probably going to the same school and definitely not the same church. I mean, that's, that's just how things are, and vice versa. So when you, when you look at it and you say, well, gee whiz, uh, there are no black people in this community. There are no white people in that community. I wouldn't say it's racism. It's how we have decided we want to live. Uh, is that a good thing? I, I, I would say not. And in order to overcome that, then you and I need to really understand each other. We need to listen to each other understand your perspective. What does white privilege mean to you? Uh, what does white guilt mean to you? What does systemic racism mean to me? We need to sit and talk about those things. We need to listen. We need to try to understand. I'm not sure we've done a lot of that today. Every time something happens bad, a black person is killed, then the news media hops on that, uh, the leaders come out and they take advantage of that. Sometimes a commission is formed to study why that happens. And then it dies down, nothing gets done. So if things are going to change. It actually has to change between people like you and me and other whites and blacks to sit down and really try to understand the dynamics of our culture, what it is we want. Do we really understand each other? 
Is it a matter of white guilt? Is it a matter of racism? If so, how do we deal with this? What's our strategy to get with it? And then how do we deal with it? How we vote, where we live, where we bank, who we associate with, all of these things Play as part it. of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So as you look at the landscape today, um, obviously our nation has become charged on this issue again yes. uh, in recent days. Uh, is that um, helpful in leading somewhere? Is there a negative side to that? How do you see that, especially with your long history of seeing race relations in our country? And then, uh, well, let me ask that, and then I have a follow-up. As things are happening today, um, I don't understand all the dynamics. Uh, the Black Lives Matter, I think I understand it, why that's formed. Um, the idea is to work against um, police brutality in the black community uh, for people who are underserved. The motive, I mean, how do you, how do you change that though? Uh, that's the part I don't understand. What is the strategy? What are the outcomes that we are expected to have in the Black Lives Matter movement? It's one thing to, to demonstrate against it, but how do you change it? What is the strategy to change it? What are the expected outcomes? Okay. So one of the things I've heard people say, white people say, and I've had white people, you know, they're all over a spectrum. Uh, you get people who, uh, you know, whether they would call themselves this or not, would say, you know, I'm woke, you know, and then people who would say, I don't think there's such a thing as systemic racism or um, white privilege. And, and, you know, people are all over the place. But one of the things I've heard from some people is I'm all for, obviously, people who are black being treated equally. There shouldn't be any discrimination, racism. But when I see things like rioting and looting being tied to to the protest, it makes me recoil from the whole thing. And then some others, I would say, I've heard say, well, Black Lives Matter um, seems to, as an organization, care about certain black lives, but certainly not all black lives, because, you know, you take uh, the young man who was killed in the chop zone, um, who was black, and very little outcry over that. Um, and so how, how do we know which black lives are supposed to matter per black lives matter? Um, how, how do you re relate to the, and there's two questions there, really. Um, how, how do you answer those two? Well, first of all, from what I've observed, um, the black lives movement has been infiltrated by people and groups who have, don't have the same objectives as black lives matter. Uh, theirs is more of destruction and it's actually not black people and other blacks um, actually doing the demonstrating and looting and, and tearing down. It's actually whites and others whose motives are different than the Black Lives Movement. That's, that's one thing. So the, the other thing is, as, as black people, I mean, 
obviously everyone doesn't have the same circumstance. So, so how, how do we as African-Americans help those who are in the lower echelon of our society? How do we help and how do white help to do that? If demonstration will get the attention of whites, I, I think it's good. If demonstration will get the attention of Congress, I think it's good. But if it's just demonstration to let off steam and to show our dislike for what's going on in society without a plan, I don't think it's going to have much good. Okay. So if you could change something, if there was an outcome tomorrow that came out of this cultural moment that changed something that would be the enduring lasting change, and I'm talking about structural change, uh, like obviously if we could wave a wand and change everyone's heart, that's you know a great thing, but I'm talking about a, an outcome. What would be the outcome that you would say that would really be a positive outcome of this moment? If one outcome, if a black person, a means, could buy, can go, could associate with whomever he wanted to anywhere in the United States, that would be a positive outcome to me. Okay. And you don't believe that that is possible today? No, I don't think so. Okay. As an example, um, in the 70s, Muhammad Ali wanted to buy real estate uh, in the West Pittsburgh. Uh, he was not allowed to do that. He, he had the resources, uh, but he was not allowed to do it because of where it was located. It would not accept African Americans. Another thing, K. Leroy Irvis was Speaker of the House for for Pennsylvania, but he could not go to the Duquesne Club. It's things like that. I mean, are there vestiges still today? I think there, there, there will be in some places. So what I'm saying is if a black person with whatever, as, as, as equal as white, could go any place in the United States, buy, sell, live, associate, wherever he wanted to, that would be a positive outcome. But I don't think that's going to come out of the demonstrations that are happening today in the street. And the reason why that it says Black Lives Matter, well, it's not only police brutality, but in other aspects of our lives, where we live, where we bank, where we buy groceries, who we associate with, there's still lines of demarcation there. Okay. So you've been a Christian man for uh, years as well. Um, how has your Christian faith impacted your view on your own journey in terms of black and white and how you're seeing the world today? It's been a long journey. I started out early. At the age of 12, I accepted Christ as my Savior. Um, I must admit, I've not been, I'm not, at that point, has not grown to the point where I am now. I grew in my faith. Um, I was taught early by my parents, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. 
that that sort of stuck with us as as children. Um, as children, we there were three things we we had to do. We knew work, church, and school. Those three things you had to perform. Um, I recall growing up, we as children had to read the Bible on Sunday morning before we went to church. We were given certain scriptures to read. We were not always patient and want to read these, but we had we had to read them. The twenty third Psalm, for example, First uh, Corinthians thirteen, uh, Matthew five forty four, love your enemies. These things at the time as a child did not stick. But the 23rd Psalm came in very handy when I went to college and was a student demonstrating uh, on the picket lines when you were approached by police and the police dogs or whatever. Uh, to be able to recite that in your mind, it had meaning. It didn't have meaning when we were growing up as children. It, it was something we had to do in order to eat and get dressed to go to church. Again, in service, the 23rd Psalm again comes back. Um, Martin Luther King talked about love your enemies. As a child, we did not understand how do you love your enemy? I mean, how do you do that? But Martin Luther King taught us how to do that in the student demonstration. He taught us, uh, it, was, it was shown actually in the March on Washington. Uh, on August 28, 1963, the March on Washington, which I participated in, it, it all started to make sense to me. And then in corporate life, some of the challenges that I faced, some of the scripture and the things that we were taught as children really helped me to prevail, to make it. And then uh, the teaching that I've experienced at Orchard Hill Church certainly has helped me in that growth. Mm. So you're a military veteran, yes. Vietnam War. Yes. Um, one of the issues that's been kind of talked about here in the recent days is the kneeling during the national anthem. Uh, obviously, some people feel like that's a great way to bring attention to an issue. Others feel like it's disrespectful uh, to the nation, to veterans, to... Um, you know, the flag. Um, how have you perceived that thought about that issue? That's a very difficult one because I think the way it's been positioned in our culture, I think the motivation was real. Uh, there are disparities in the race. There is racism in our society. And Colin wanted to draw attention to that. Now, the way that he did it certainly was an affront to some people. And when the president got involved and, and attached patriotism to that, it then became a different thing. How do I feel personally? I, I salute the fact I, I still, would I take a knee? I don't know. I, it, it all depends on the circumstance. What, what does it mean? to take a knee. I, I, don't, I don't say that's wrong for someone who wants to do it, but is that gonna help 
may get what it is we're trying to get. I, I'm not sure it will. If it's going to alienate some or alienate all, maybe we should find a different way to do it. But if you feel strongly that that will help to bring the change, then I support the one who wants to do it. Okay. So, um, yeah, one of the things that I find challenging with that is sometimes it feels like in our culture we set up a dichotomy where a binary choice. Yes. Rather than being able to be for the country and for racial equality, uh, for um, police officers where the majority are, you know, people who say we want to serve well, um, and yet for the end of brutality to people of, um, you know, uh, black um, uh, racial background. Uh, and, and instead we, we set up these binaries where you, you can't be both at the same time. And that, uh, to me, seems like an unfortunate thing. And I understand that part of that is they're saying in order to draw the line, you've got you've to make it more, more clear. But uh, that um, is just something I've observed. One of the, the um, arguments for systemic racism that people make and seems fair is that you have generations of people who've lived in poverty uh, and that the systems have conspired to keep people in, in poverty. So you're somebody who was able to, and I don't know how much poverty or not lack of poverty you had as a child, but you were able to uh, certainly live um, as an executive at a you know significant company and do very well financially. Why were you able to to do well when so many other people uh, from that era, Jim Crow, whatever you want to put around it, had the system? Um, as the reason that they weren't able to do well? What, what made the difference? I, I share with you three things that my parents insisted on. And they insisted on these things because they felt if we pursued those and were successful that we could beat Jim Crow and any other crow in the world. Mm -hmm. That is hard work church, religion, God, and education. Now, my parents did not have a formal education. My, my father went to the fifth grade, my mom to the ninth grade. They were stopped because they had to work. But they knew in order for their children to succeed in the world, that they had to do things for themselves. And those were the three things that they instilled in us. And because of that, all six of their children are educated. All six of the children had professional careers. And all of the children are at, at or in retirement at this time. So wouldn't that, again, just if somebody's listening, wouldn't that be an argument against systemic racism? <laughs> With my long journey, I would say no. Okay, so, <laughs> so, so, so unpack that, just because I can imagine somebody listening right now saying, well, you just proved that with hard work, church, and education, parents will to say we're going to direct you, form you, push you, that you can overcome, even though there were 
bigger problems then than today. Um, but certainly, whatever you were able to, to come through, what help help somebody understand that? Well, while I feel like we I had a successful career, there were challenges along the way. While I was successful, and some of my white counterparts were successful, along basically the same track, we encountered very different circumstances. For example, working twice as hard to get half as much. <laughs> We've heard that one before. First hired, last hired, first fired. These are things that, uh, as an African-American, I think we all had to deal with. And then once you get the job, what you had to do in order to keep the job, always prove that you could perform, mm -hmm. but it was always more than your white counterpart. Okay. So in that vein, while I feel that I am a successful, my family was successful, there were price, there were prices paid along the way. In the military, the same thing, integrated uh, service, but it was very difficult to go up the ranks because of those who were in charge. Now, yes, you perform your duty, you kept a clean nose, but then you could only go but so far because the perception was African-Americans shouldn't go beyond this level. Another example, uh, the lower ranks, uh, drill sergeants and what have you, the work areas of the military, the kitchen, mess hall, African-Americans who are, you know, had leeway to perform there. But as you go up the chain, it's much more difficult. And, and you could say, well, uh, the officers want to promote those who look like them, they felt comfortable with it. Yeah, uh, that, that's probably the case, but still the barriers were there. And they're there even to today. Okay. So having grown up back in the 50s, uh, obviously you're not a young man at this point of your life. Not as, um, <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> there is longevity there. <laughs> so what would you say to young black men today that would be helpful to them? What would you say to younger white uh, men uh, today? Uh, men and women um, that would be helpful, and black men and women. What would you say uh, j just to people who are haven't had your longevity, your experience, your eyes? This is maybe their first kind of cultural moment where race has become front and center. There is so much opportunity in the marketplace, and it exists for anyone, blacks in particular. You have to work to earn your way to make your contribution. And for whites, um, you'll have to give up something. In other words, there's white privilege. Uh, maybe there's white guilt. Those are the things maybe that you have to work on in a culture as a young person. Do these two change how you look at African-Americans, how you relate to them and interact with them, your expectations of them? Or are you going to let the media 
drive how you perceive people. In other words, are you going to have your own framework because of your own experience with ethnic groups rather than perceive and look at what's on TV? Mm-hmm. Okay. So a lot of opportunity, but are you going to be shaped by media or something deeper, really? Uh, yeah, the... you, you have to make choices on your own, how you relate to people. For, for blacks, there are many opportunities out there now, but we have to prepare ourselves to accept them. It's, it's not going to come and sit in our laps. We have to do something to earn them. The opportunities there, we have to apply ourselves. And I think if we can do that, I think opportunities there is not going to be easy. It's not all pie and cake at this point, but it's it's possible. For example, I use myself as an example. Okay. Okay. And uh, kind of a last question, and then if there's anything else you want to say about this whole topic, we'd love to hear that. But um, what would you say to somebody who says, well, you've chosen to live in a more white area. You said yourself you've been the only black family in your neighborhood for a generation at this point. Um, what would you say to somebody about who, who says, well, why did you make that choice? What, what was the benefit of that rather than saying, um, you know, I don't choose to be kind of uh, in a place where I'm the only uh, mm -hmm. person at least from a neighborhood, obviously there's more diversity around the area than just that neighborhood, but, but yes. it's predominantly a white area. Yes. I would say that was approaching the American dream. I've had experience in poor neighborhoods, predominantly black. I've lived in neighborhoods where they were mixed. I lived in the military, which was probably more diversity in the place I've I lived in a mixed area in in Pittsburgh when I first came. I moved into a predominantly white area that became predominantly black mm -hmm. because when blacks moved in, whites moved out. And it so happened that I had the resources and the choice to buy in Wexford without impediment, and I did. And I think that I made a contribution in all of those areas where I live. So I, I don't I don't think one should just say, well, I, I want to live in a black area or I just want to live in an all-white area. That's choice. But I've had different experiences along the way. Each one, I think, benefited me. I live in a predominantly white area now because I could afford to do that, and it had the amenities that I wanted. I've not had any issues. So. Okay. Well, I know you've made a significant contribution to the life of Orchard Hill over well, the years, you. just in a variety of ways. So any last uh, comments you'd like to just make or things that you think would be helpful? The one thing I would say now, there's a lot of dialogue by a lot of people in a lot of places around the world. If we're, if we're going to live together, be productive together. We have to learn what each other wants, what our needs are. And until we do that, I, I don't think there's going to be much 
progress. There are going to be pockets of people and ideas around the world. But once we as people understand the needs of all, and all our needs are basically the same. In America, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, that we all want that regardless of race. How do we go about getting that? We have to understand each other, how we interact, how we individually can help each other to secure the American dream. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet, but I think we can get there if we listen, learn from each other, understand, and then pursue that, the happiness that we all want in America. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, John, for just uh, taking part of your day to share your years of perspective on this issue. Um, this is John Fuller. And uh, again, we appreciate you taking part of your day to be part of Ask a Pastor. If you have questions or issues you'd like us to address, please send them to askapastor at orchardhillchurch.com, and we'll be happy to address them in a coming episode.